Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Well, thanks for being with us this morning. If you're new, as Jen said, my name is is Landon and I... uh, I'm grateful to get to be one of the the team players here with Restoration, and Jen correctly stated that uh, we're in Exodus for basically ever, and the Ten Commandments only ten weeks, so that's not um, as as bad. If you have a Bible, we're actually going to spend most of our time in the New Testament, so maybe turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. As we continue kind of in this, this series through the Ten Commandments today, we are on the sixth. And in our translation uh, of the, the Bible, our English version has just three words today. If you go to the King James, you'll have four words, much more complex and hard to understand. In Hebrew, it's actually just two words, and it's in our three words. Here's the whole morning. Ready? Do, the next word is really important, do not Murder. The not is really key there. Do not murder. That's it. It honestly is basically about as simple as that. Uh, as we've discussed every week so far, context is always king. And so God has just saved his people out of oppression and racism and uh, abuse and, and slavery in Egypt. Now They're now entering what we refer to as the promised land where they're going to start a new way of life as a new people with a new government. And God's giving them this law actually as a gift. It's a good thing. It's not restrictive. It's going, here's how to have a healthy, good life, because they've not experienced that for over 400 years. And so the Ten Commandments are kind of this initial pointing directional vision of what life can look like in this land. And then they come to these three important words, do not murder, for the most part, are pretty simple. There's a little bit of, of nuance there, though. In Hebrew, there's seven words, seven different words to describe killing. This is just one of them, and it's used only 47 times in the Old Testament, and it's a, a really specific word. 47 times, there's a lot of killing that happens in the Scripture, so 47 times is actually pretty small. It's insignificant. This is a really specific and precise Word. It does not include the killing of animals. It does not include killing in the context of war. It's, it's really precise. It actually doesn't even include things like the death penalty in a judicial or, or court-type setting. This word really refers to murder. And maybe even more precisely, it refers to murder done in the context of vengeance. So in the, the Hebrew culture here, they had what we call or what you'll read as refugee cities. So if somebody accidentally killed somebody, they would go to a refugee city where they would be kept safe until the actual legal process could be completed. Basically, pretty simple here. Three words, do not murder. Then we fast forward to Jesus' words in the the gospel of Matthew. Jesus the author of the Ten Commandments. He's God. And then we get to his own commentary about his law and what his heart and vision for that law was and is in Matthew chapter 15. And it sort of complicates it, sort of simplifies it. We'll read what he has to say. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. 
I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is something we've talked about throughout the Ten Commandments, that his intent is to bring back the law to its original intent to be life-giving, not life-taking. Verse 18, for I assure you, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Scribes are the people that literally wrote word for word, letter for letter, the scriptures on manuscripts, so they should be fairly familiar with the scriptures. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. So with that in mind, Jesus says, unless you are more righteous than those people, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That kind of clues us into something. The, the religious people in this day, oftentimes people in places of religious power and authority today are not in line with God's heart. There's something we see consistently throughout the scriptures that religion is just powerful, period. But it can be powerful in both positive and negative ways, especially when we focus on the letter of law, the letter of the law instead of the heart of the law. And that's what Jesus came to restore. Continue in, in verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, speaking of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, do not murder. They're simple three words. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. It's kind of group governing from different political parties. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. I don't know if you knew that or not, but if you call someone a moron, apparently you're going to hell. That's maybe challenging. Verse 23, so... If you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. My mama told me when I was a kid and all kinds of stories from when she was a child. And, and one time she was sharing how her mother, so my grandma, got into a, a car accident. And uh, a couple of days later or whatnot, before cell phones were invented, the man that uh, was responsible for the car accident called their, their home, called the house, and my grandma was not there. So my mom's younger brother, who's two years or three years younger or something like that, answers the phone and the man said who he was and what had happened. And so my uncle, Damien, my mom's younger brother, uh, took the, the note, right, referencing what happened and left a message for his mom. And you have to kind of understand this about my uncle. He has a very particular style, especially with words. He has a way with words, a way that I probably can't totally reference here in this moment, if you kind of understand what I'm saying. And so as a young kid, I think he had that style as well. And so he wrote on the note, the moron that hit you called. And then he wrote the digits, and he felt that was sufficient. And so sometime later, my poor grandma, who has four crazy kids, I can say four crazy kids because I have four kids, and I think if you have four kids, it's crazy. Sorry, Mom. Um, 
comes home, and I imagine she's flustered. She's got four crazy kids. She also has just been in a car accident. Who knows what else is going on? So I imagine my, my poor little grandma's in kind of this distressed, flustered state. She comes to read the note from her son who put it there in the kitchen. Keep in mind, oldest brother, my uncle Dan's there. Younger brother, Damien, who took the note, probably doesn't have great handwriting. I don't know if that's true, but maybe it's genetic like mine. He wrote the moron that called you, call him back, blah, blah, blah. So my grandma gets there, sees it. She has to deal with the logistics, insurance, etc. Calls up, it rings. A man answers on the other uh, side of the, the phone and says, hello. And she says, Mr. Moron. To which both of my uncles hit the floor in the kitchen, dying, because what she does not know is that her youngest son wrote the moron that called you, not Mr. Moron who called you. The good news for my uncle is that this does not mean, this is not a, uh, a quick way to go to hell if you call someone moron and Thank God for my grandma, too. It's okay. If only they would have read the Gospels prior to that moment. But what does Jesus mean? So he wrote, do not murder. Three words, fairly simple. And then he decided to say, you've gotten it wrong. To the religious people, following religion, you've not understood. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, meaning you kind of think it's this, but I'm the author, creator, and sustainer. Let me actually explain what's going on here. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Let me cast a vision for you of what this means for life. And if all of a sudden what he's saying is so different than the simple words of do not murder, but how we speak to people, how anger can begin to bubble and fester in our hearts and go from murderous hearts to murderous words to murderous hands, maybe there's something significant that we need to pay attention to here. People in our culture struggle with anger. Just murderous hands, again, murderous words flow very freely. I think murderous hearts are a very commonplace reality. What I want to talk about today, though, is who we are as the church. And I think what we need to do when we hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, what we call the gospels, the good news, is some self-reflection. Because I think what Jesus is saying is that a heart check needs to happen. There's something going on in the hearts of his followers that's off. There's something going on in the, the hearts of us who follow Jesus that he actually associates with murder. And that's probably something worth paying attention to. Ed Stetzer puts it this way. He says, Jesus is interested in outward behavior only as it reflects the inward state of our hearts. While harboring anger against a brother was not technically against the law, Jesus teaches that insulting and raging against others is still intensely ungodly behavior. Today, we see a similar disconnect in our understanding of anger. Many people look for loopholes in the command so they can feel a sense of self-righteousness in an attempt to justify themselves before God and man. The reality is, Jesus' teaching brings us to the heart of the law, not just the letter of the law. A heart that gives way to worldly anger is sinful and severely at odds with the Spirit of God. 
Such fury damages ourselves, our churches, our communities, and ultimately God's kingdom. Excusing it as innocent social media, as an innocent social media comment, or simply the way political rhetoric works sorely misses the point. This is why we must confront the lie that our outrage is righteous anger. When we treat such anger lightly and try to pass it off as holiness, we damage our souls. My mom brought up uh, this painting, which you're probably familiar with this week to me. I've always hated this painting. In elementary school, it was in like art class, or it's all over the place, and I never understood it. It's famous, I'm assuming worth a whole lot of money, and to me, it looks like a kid did it. Like, I don't, I just, I don't see what's going on here. Until this week, when my mom enlightened me a little bit on the, the meaning and what the, the artist here, Van Gogh, is uh, articulating and communicating. And now, I have a very different appreciation for this. As we look at this art piece, there's a whole lot of light. And in this piece, this light is representing love and what is good and, and the source of it. And so we see all kinds of light in the, the sky and this starry night. You see all kinds of light in the town everywhere but one place. Where is it dark? The church. So what's the translation? The one place that Van Gogh says there is no light, there is no good, there is no love coming from is none other than the church. He's also prophetic. Because if you look at our culture today, that's how so many people view the church. That it's the one place maybe, but certainly a place where light does not come from, where good does not come from, where love does not flow from. That's powerful. Unfortunately, it's powerful probably because in many cases it's true. It's probably the experience many of you have had with the church. I'd make the argument that the reason this has happened a big portion of the reason this has happened is that we as Christians have misunderstood a calling we have. We have a calling, commissioning from God himself to both love and to hate. Bear with me for a moment. But what we are called to do as Christians, like Christ did, is both to love and to hate. And I think we often mix up who we are to love and what we are to hate. I'll, I'll read from Romans 12, 9, so you don't think I'm crazy. Love must be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. There's a biblical command, foundation given to us to love and to hate. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. The reason I think there's no light in Van Gogh's church. The reason I believe and see that in our culture, so many people look at the church, not necessarily the building, partially that though for sure, but also the church, that's us, as a place that is not the source of good and light and love, I think is because we've mixed up what to hate and what to love. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves frequently loving things that are actually harmful and hating primarily people whom Jesus loved enough to give up his life for. As Christians, we have a significant, seemingly paradoxical calling to both love and to both hate. 
But again, I think we confuse those things. We're called to love people, called to love the good that God declared was good in our world, his creation, his design, his intent. Most of all, we're called to foundationally love God himself. We're also called to to hate things, just like what the people of God had just endured in Egypt. It was detestable. Racism, slavery, abuse, oppression, dehumanization, all the awful, horrendous things that are so far away from what God's good intent is for this life. They are worthy of hate. We're supposed to hate those things, to fight against them, to bring restoration to what God's intent for life is, to partner with God and the Spirit as he leads us so that he moves and he works and his love and story is known. Scriptures make it very clear. Jesus hates oppression and abuse. Jesus hates the pain that sin causes. When you experience that, which we all do, Jesus hates it. Jesus hates worthless religion. Scriptures say that multiple times. And Jesus so loved the world that he gave up his life for it. All of those statements are true. All of those statements are founded here in the scriptures. I was listening to uh, something Craig Rochelle was providing, this video, and in it he was talking about the extremes of Jesus' leadership and the paradoxical nature of how Jesus leads, how Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, how he's the alpha and omega, or the beginning and the end, If you look at the scriptures, Jesus does get angry at injustice, yet he's absurdly forgiving. Jesus is a thrower of tables in a religious setting, and he's the one that refuses to throw the first stone for the woman in adultery. Jesus loves and Jesus hates. He hates that which separates the world from his love. Jesus wields both love and hate perfectly. Here's the issue. I believe love and hate, which we cannot avoid, we all love and we all hate. I believe love and hate are things too powerful for mere human hands and for mere human hearts. That's why the world, that's why we as the church so desperately need Jesus. Because only when we hand over our hearts to him to control what we love and what we hate can any good come out of it. Otherwise, we have a church filled with darkness and a world looking at it, expecting nothing less. Colossians 3 describes this. I want to read Colossians 3, 1 through 17. It's a little long, but just soak in these words. Don't worry about the details. Soak in the whole picture. It's beautiful. The Apostle Paul's writing this. It's just a letter to a church, people like us, gathered in a place called Colossae. Paul says this. So, if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God, meaning in authority. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, put to death, some really harsh language, what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. 
But now you must also, keywords, put away all the following anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. By the way, filthy language here is not talking about cuss words. It's talking about how we talk about people. It's the whole context here. How we distort and disparage other people's reputations. But now you must also put away all the following anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language. How often is that list the list used to describe the church? Far too often. So once we've put off, now put on the new self. You are being renewed, keyword, you are being renewed, not you're doing the renewing. Someone else is renewing you in the knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Those groupings and identities of people might not apply to us. They might not resonate in our minds the way they did for the Colossians. So insert whatever people groups you want. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved. That's who we are as the beloved of Christ. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on. You seeing a theme here? Put off, put on, hold on to that. Heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How often is that the list of things that people use to describe the church? Not meaning the building, meaning us and the everyday stuff of life. Probably far too infrequently is that the description. Hence, dark church and Van Gogh's painting. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah, the gospel, dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What a beautiful, life-changing picture. It's pretty tough, though. Look at verse 15 again. And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. And let the peace of the Messiah control your hearts. Meaning, translation, give up control of your heart. Why? Because the hearts and what comes from it, both love and hate, are things too powerful for mere human hands and human Hearts, And so what we have to do is this unbelievably brutal, challenging thing of giving up control. Saying, Jesus, I'm not trustworthy even with my own heart. So you take it. How many of us are willing to do that? There's this, this funny thing that happens in our, we'll call it Christianity, our following of Jesus. Or maybe you quote unquote accept Jesus into your heart. We start to follow Jesus, and then somewhere along the way, we oftentimes, happens to almost everybody, we lose sight of who we first needed. 
Paul says, you've lost sight of your first love and we get distracted from Jesus and we turn to ourselves and our own religion and spiritual disciplines and things that we can do and then it's almost as if we wouldn't articulate it this way but somewhere back to our hearts. We don't need Jesus anymore because we think we can do it. We can control our own sin and our own struggles. We can work hard enough to be who he's made us to be. We can make it happen. I think we think far too little of our own sin. I think we think far too little of the condition of our hearts. I actually think the way we think of our own hearts is kind of like this little rowboat. This is what it reminds me of. If I'm in that little rowboat, I can control that rowboat with that oar, set of oars. I can uh, row all around whatever body of water decide where I want to go, and that little boat is going to go there. It's something controllable and manageable. I can manipulate it. I have the energy and strength to get where I want to go. I think that's how we view our hearts, that we can do it, that you have the power, you have the tools, you can go where you want to go. You're in control. And I think it's a bold, brilliant, deceptive lie from Satan that we think we can be in control. And it doesn't stop after you accept Jesus, after you start following him. If anything, maybe that's when Satan tries all the harder to get you to buy this lie. Self-deception equals self-destruction because it deceives us into thinking we do not need Jesus. I think oftentimes we as the church are some of the least self-aware people there are. Forget everyone else for a moment. They don't really matter. All we can work on is us. And I think we often really lack self-awareness. Self-deception equals self-destruction because it deceives us into thinking we don't need Jesus. Self-awareness equals freedom because it causes us to give up control to the spirit. I think we often view our own sin, our own heart issues, grasping for control like that little rowboat when in reality I think it looks like this other situation. How far are you going to get with an oar on that boat? Not very far. You can try as much as you want. You can row and row and row your little boat until your heart is tired of singing and you're not going to get anywhere you want to go. Where the wind pushes you, you'll go. Where the waves crash and the powers of the world and culture want you to move, you will be moved. But here we are in our little Christian world going, I'm going to get there. Just got to work harder and be in more Bible studies. I just need to embrace more spiritual disciplines. I just need to do this or do that. And all of a sudden, we've lost sight of our first love, Jesus. So the gospel says, have self-awareness and get rid of, ditch, toss out, destroy the oars that you keep trying to get somewhere with because you can't get there. And all the while, here's Jesus. I like that. I didn't say that last, last service. All the while, here is Jesus, inviting you to just hoist the sails. Even on that boat, you can get real far real fast when you hoist the sails and the wind catches. And all Jesus says is, I'm inviting you to let my spirit lead. 
to let my spirit take control because when we do, he's never not answered that prayer. When we hoist the sails and say, you take control instead of me, I don't want to do this anymore. In fact, I can't do this anymore. I'm giving you control of my heart because a heart and mere human hands is not good. I hoist the sails and give you control. Now, I'm not saying there's not steps to be taken. There are things we have to do. They're good. But I think so often we... We skip or forget the first step of just asking. And it's a daily process. I was, I was talking to, to Kate about this this week. It's not something that you're good to go two days from now. Every single morning, morning after morning after morning, we have to ditch those oars. Night after night, day after day, that process doesn't stop. You know why? Because we think so highly of ourselves. Keeping in mind insecurity is just a different form of thinking highly of ourselves. Every one of us comes right out of the womb with a superpower. Caring about ourselves and telling everyone else how much we matter. You come out of the womb crying. Like, I'm really remarkable, I mean truly, at thinking about me all the time. About what I want, about what I don't want, about what I should have, about what I don't have. I went to a NASCAR race yesterday and now I just got Toby Keith in my mind because I feel like somehow that just has to happen and all I can hear is I want to talk about me, 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 you know, like that's what we do naturally. Every one of us are born self-obsessed and so every day I have to throw down those oars because every day I think I'm good enough to do it but every day here is Jesus saying here I am. One way to think about the gospel is these two words, Quit trying. Doesn't matter how much you try, quit trying. Throw the oars away and give control to Jesus. Romans 13, 11 uh, through 14 says this. Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. I almost take that as a way of see what's actually in the mirror. Quit dreaming. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the daylight is near. So let us discard, throw away the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of what? Light. That's what we're called to be, a source of light, a source of love. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but... Here's some some of these words we've read quite a few of so far. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. What an incredibly weird thing for Paul to say. Like, insert any other human being's name. Put on any person. You go, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to put on Christ Jesus? That's not a natural statement that makes sense in English. I think it's just a choice to give up control, to throw away the, the oars, to hoist the sails, and to let the Spirit move. I shared this many years ago, now when we were in a series in Colossians about this putting on and putting off, this language that Paul uses a lot. I had bought a really banged up, terrible, barely surviving habanero plant at a, uh, at a shop for like a dollar because I'm really cheap, and 
I figured, hey, it's worth a try. We'll see if we can bring this thing back to life. And so I went home, I planted it, and it is like withered. It literally has holes in it from the, the hailstorm that it was in. It looks very closer to death than life. It's really like unrecognizable to someone not smart like me. Like, I don't know what kind of plant it is if it doesn't have a sign on it that tells me, right? Like you don't recognize its identity. But no matter how ugly that plant looked, its identity was still this habanero plant. It was not asparagus or a tomato or green chilies or anything else. It was a habanero plant. And eventually, as I planted it and gave it nutrients and put it in the light and gave it water, things it needs, guess what happened? It came back to life. It became what it was meant to be, and then it produced seeds and other plants. This is what the Gospels actually use this image for us of what happens when we let Christ take over. Now, I'm a terrible gardener, but Jesus is the ultimate. This is the picture of him being the vine and we are the branches, that he is the source of life. No matter how far today as you sit in a chair, you look away from what God's intent is for you, you were made brilliantly. You were made beautifully, each one of you, in a different and unique way. The almighty, powerful God of the universe who gave his life up on a cross and then conquered sin and death and Satan and breathed again in his own lungs, he made you. Like, he took time to design you. He took time to count the hairs on your head. Every little detail about you, that God knows, who's creator, savior, and sustainer. And it doesn't matter how distanced you are from what his original intent is, it is never too far. There is no plant that this gardener named Jesus cannot restore and bring back to life that will send fruit everywhere. Because the identity is what the identity is. You are a child of God. You are one he loved enough to give up his own life for. Guess what? The little habanero plant I had, it didn't do the work. I did the work. I planted it. I gave it water. I put it where the sun shines. And then it produced. This is what Jesus does. Close with Romans 12, 9 through 21. We read part of this, but it's just, it's so powerful. Love must be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Show family-like affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with, share with the saints and their needs. Pursue hospitality. This is a hard list. Like, these are not things that come naturally to us. It requires Christ in us to lead the way. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And the conversations we have, especially with outsiders that are not Christians following Jesus, how often do we speak as if we're wise in our own estimation? How does that impact modern-day Van Gogh's painting? Probably quite a bit. Back to uh, the sixth commandment, three words, do not murder. The, the core core of that was, as I mentioned, in the context of vengeance, right? Now listen to this in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. Keyword try. 
If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath, for it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. There's moments in life where vengeance is rightfully desired. People do awful things. You've very likely experienced that. I love the scriptures because God does not ignore that. But he says, you don't worry about it. You hand control over your heart to me. And instead, gives us a set of easy commands. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You know what that means? We're called to be aware of the needs our enemies have. How often are we so busy trying to lawyer somebody that we have no awareness of their story and their struggles and their hurts and their confusions and their pains and their needs because we're so busy trying to prove a point and win an argument. All the while, Jesus is saying, love. That doesn't mean we don't need to have complex, hard, candid conversations. Plenty of those happen in the scriptures. We're called to that but never if we don't view the person first as a person Jesus himself was willing to give up his own life for. Before we can argue, we have to value. Are you familiar with the needs of your enemies? Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. On that, do not read, row more. That's what we often do as Christians. All right, I guess I need to put in more effort. Row more, row harder. Practice my technique. Throw Throw the oars out. Hoist the sails and invite the Spirit. That's what to put on Christ means. Go, Christ, fill me. Christ, before me. Christ, behind me. Christ, lead me. I surrender my heart to you and you lead the way. My hope for that, for us, for Prescott, is... That maybe one day the next Van Gogh comes around and next time there's some light in that church. Not the building. I don't, the building matters, but not that much. But where the people go, where the people of the church go, the places we spend our time, our money, do our activities, in those places light shines. And those places love is known because we've turned our hearts over to Jesus. We've let the Spirit lead. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love and your goodness. It is so hard for us not to grasp for control, and so I pray that you aid us, God. Allow us to just experience how trustworthy you are, to trust you with our wounds, our scars, our stories, with our loves, with our hates. May you lead. Surrender to you knowing that's the most freeing thing for us. May that bless those around us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on 
as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.